welcome Hoosier fans to another victorious episode of the Assembly Call as tonight we rewatched your number seven seed Indiana Hoosiers defeat the number 10 seed Oklahoma Sooners 94 to 87 in overtime to advance to the second round of the 1998 NCAA tournament where they will face the winner of UConn and Fairleigh Dickinson, a game that is getting ready to tip right now as we uh, as we talk here on the postgame show. Uh, obviously, the Hoosiers jumped out to that 19-point lead midway through the second half, saw Oklahoma get it all the way down to nothing as they tied it to force overtime, and then the Hoosiers were able to really take control early in the overtime, uh, scored the first six points, jumped out early, and Oklahoma was never really able to get back into it from that point. So a nice finish for Indiana, really some good minutes there in the beginning, but obviously disappointing to see the Hoosiers really struggle down the stretch like they did. But they won. They move on. The victory is Indiana's 20th of the season, now the 19th time that Bob Knight has hit that mark in Bloomington, and it marks the first time that Indiana has won its opening round NCAA tournament game since 1994. So nice to see the Hoosiers break that streak. I'm your host, Jared Morris. I'm here with Andy Bottoms and Galen Clavio from Crimson Cast, and we're going to break it all down for you on this edition of the Assembly Call IU Postgame Show. And let's start this show the way that we start every show, and that is with our banner moment. And For tonight's banner moment, I'm actually going to go back to the end of regulation. And you might say, well, man, that was like, you know, one of the worst stretches for Indiana. How are we going to go back there for the banner moment? And the reason is because I thought there was a stretch from Andre Patterson at the end there that was really, really important. You know, Oklahoma whittles it all the way down. The Hoosiers are up 19. They get it down to a five-point game, and Indiana is really reeling. I mean, to the point where it looked like Oklahoma might take control of this thing and actually win it. And so, you know, with A.J. Guyton really struggling, I mean, he scored his 21st point, I think, with 10 minutes to go, hadn't scored since then. Uh, You know, Luke Recker had a nice little offensive surge. He was really struggling by that point. Indiana went inside to Andre Patterson. And obviously, look, Andre is a guy that we've criticized throughout his career. You know, he's had some phenomenal performances, but also has been a guy at times that when he gets the ball inside, has shied away from contact. And we saw that from him early in the game. You know, he was really doing a nice job hitting some long twos, being a productive offensive player, but had several opportunities in the post where he shied away, you know, kind of did the little fade away. And didn't even come close to making it and didn't put himself in a position to get a foul. And on two straight possessions there at the end of regulation, Indiana went inside to Andre Patterson and it seemed like it really settled things down. And what was impressive and encouraging is that he went up strong. The first time with about two minutes left, he pump faked, stepped through the contact, scored, you know, got the end one. He did miss the free throw, but that put Indiana back up seven after they were only up five. Then on the next time down, they went right back down to Andre Patterson again. He took it up strong, got fouled again, made both of the free throws. That put Indiana up 80 to 73. And look, obviously from that point forward, you know, Oklahoma would score the next seven points of the game. But without those two possessions from Andre Patterson to settle things down toward the end of regulation, Indiana might have lost the game altogether. And so I thought, you know, those two possessions and especially the way Patterson treated them, if he can, you know, for as long as Indiana's playing in this tournament, if he can play strong and be a guy that can really combine his outside scoring ability with that ability to score down low when Indiana needs a bucket, that can really help this team. For the game, he had 26 points, five boards, two assists, two steals, a really, really solid game for Andre Patterson. And, you know, when Indiana needed him most there late in regulation, he really came through for this team. All right. Our Hoosier Proud Banner moment, as always, brought to you by our friends at Home Field Apparel, a company that was founded by an IU grad. They remain based in Indianapolis, and, you know, they are 
you know, one of the things we love about them is they do right by their employees. You know, that that is Connor, just a lot of integrity with the way that he runs the business. But, you know, that's what you would expect from an IU guy. But the most important thing about Homefield Apparel, and obviously the best reason why you should go to their website, support them, buy their apparel, is because it's just the best Indiana apparel on the market. It's incredibly comfortable, whether you're getting a short sleeve tee, a long sleeve tee, a crew neck sweater, a hoodie. It is such comfortable stuff. It's comfortable from the moment you take it out of the package and you wash it 10 times. It's still just as comfortable. And they have the most unique IU logos you're going to find anywhere. Old logos, you know, the Bison logo, the old Indiana Shoes logo. They've got a script Hoosiers logo that, you know, I think from the early 70s that I've never seen anywhere else. So if you want comfortable IU gear and if you want unique IU gear that you can buy for yourself, that you can use as gifts, go to homefieldapparel.com and remember that because you are a listener of the Assembly Call, you get 20% off your entire order. Use the promo code ASSEMBLY20 at checkout to get that 20% off. That's ASSEMBLY20 at checkout at homefieldapparel.com. All right, well, it is time to move the ball, find the open man, and get some opening thoughts from the rest of our team. And we will start with Andy Bottoms. Andy, your bottoms line on this Indiana NCAA tournament victory. Well, it was uh, it was prophetic when Bill Raftery talked at the beginning of the game about how Knight was concerned the way this team was finishing games, uh, the what they did uh, over the course of this one, particularly in the second half. Uh, the end of the first half, for as good as it was offensively, they had a stretch right before the half where they extended the lead, scored 22 points in 15 possessions, but then uh, down the stretch, six points over the last 13 trips to really let Oklahoma climb back in the game, all six of those points by Andre Patterson. So as you mentioned, he was really the only guy who came up big and scored there. And then uh, what, what you did like to see, you don't want to see a 19-point lead blown, but you did like to see how they bounced back in the overtime uh, from a scoring perspective. They scored on all but one possession uh, in the second half, although four of those were uh, sets of split free throws. So, you know, 1.4 straight possessions where they went one out of two from the line. So had they been able to knock their free throws down a little bit better, particularly during that stretch, it would have been even uh, an even bigger margin by the end of the game. But it was good to see then bounce back. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk later about uh, the disappearance of Michael Lewis in the second half, but I think he saw some tired legs uh, there down the stretch, particularly with Luke Jimenez playing really, really extended minutes and playing uh, relatively well in those minutes. But, uh, you know, he was a guy that they were looking to foul toward the end of regulation, uh, missed a couple free throws. Maybe that was fatigue. Maybe it was nerves. Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was something else, but uh, you know, kind of interesting that the rotation really got tightened up uh, in almost the entirety of the second half. All right. Now it's time for Clavio's commentary. Galen, what are your opening thoughts on this, on this Indiana victory? This has been among the more frustrating IU basketball seasons that I can remember. Uh, it's, it's a season that we have to remember. This team started 0-2 in the conference, then went 9-2, and then went 0-3, and, and in that was one of the worst IU losses perhaps in Big Ten history when they lost 112-64 to Michigan on the road. Um, they, you know, the, what we saw in this game, I think that the injury to Rob Turner ends up being a much bigger story than most people give it credit for because what they end up doing is essentially rolling through the first 15 minutes of the game with the seven-man rotation where the first man off the bench is Luke Jimenez, and the second man off the bench is Richard Mandeville. Oh uh, you know, the, and look, I think you know the if if IU ends up winning by six or eight points in regulation, if they don't allow the big comeback at the end, we're like, oh, you know what? That was actually better than we expected because they got 
good contributions out of Luke Jimenez. They get what, seven, eight points out of him on you know, when he normally averages about one and a half points on the season. They got a relatively decent contribution out of Charlie Miller, who frankly had done a disappearing act for the entirety of his senior year. And, you know, and, and they don't have Rob Turner, who was averaging like seven points a game, I think, throughout the course of this season. But the defensive deficiencies of this team, just like last year's team, when they ended up having a season that got the, the culminating experience of being blown out by Colorado in Charlotte or, you know, I mean, it, it's a similar sort of feeling, but at least they're alive. At least they've managed to kind of right the ship here. Uh, Oklahoma proved to be pretty scrappy in this game, but, uh, you know, give the Hoosiers credit as much as they deserve uh, some criticism for letting this get away from them in the second half. The overtime woke them up and they figured out how to win there at the end. And that's not something I would expect to see out of a team that's still relatively young, all things considered. Actually odd, you know, we just beat Oklahoma and I'm looking in the chat mob and everybody's talking about the Oklahoma coach. I don't <laughs> understand why Indiana fans are so concerned I mean, with know, Oklahoma's he, coach. Yeah, he he's had, he's had a few promising years. He looked really good at Washington State. We'll we'll keep an eye on him. Yeah, well, he, we'll I think keep he'd be a great coach at a place like Minnesota maybe. So, look, you know, guys, we need to talk about, you know, the Indiana's offense because I think, you know, when when you see what Guyton and Wrecker and Patterson can do, I mean, that is a potent offensive lineup between the three of those guys. And so we will talk about that. But to me, you know, coming out of this game, my biggest concern and, you know, the one that I think is going to be a concern for Indiana as long as they're in this tournament is the perimeter defense. I mean, it was bad, really, really bad. You know, Indiana could not control dribblers. Um, and, I, and you know, I know, Galen, it's been bad all season long, but they, you know, they tried to extend the pressure out but it really didn't do much, and guys just kind of blew by them, and they didn't challenge threes very well. You know, I, I thought Jimenez did a passable job, but A.J. and Luke, for all of the things that they brought you on offense, and they did bring some things on offense, boy, defensively, they gave up almost as much as they provided tonight. So, Jared, I was walking down 10th Street here in Bloomington earlier today on my way back to Teeter, where I currently <laughs> live, and I fell... <laughs> over something on the sidewalk and it was it was peculiar because it it didn't seem like it was a solid piece of matter it was just kind of this weird almost like data cube so i picked it up and i brought it back home and i plugged it in to my my pentium uh computer that i had in in my dorm room and what i found was this bizarre set of numbers and i've spent all evening decoding them and it, it turns out there's a way to study teams based upon uh, not how many points per game they score or allow, but you you look at them based upon how many points they give up per possession and how many points they score per possession. I don't know what we're going to call this, and it maybe this is, but it seems like it's come back from the future. And this what is... I've discovered, I know this is this is ground. I'm glad you're sitting down for yeah. me giving you all this information. <laughs> but what I've discovered is that this IU team blows on defense. Um, <laughs> it's it's not just that they're bad on a game-by-game <laughs> perspective. But if you take into account their opponents, they're actually 75th in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency, whatever the hell that is. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not very good. And this is something, you know, when we think about Bob Knight coached teams, we think about their ability to stop the opposition. You think back to those great teams last decade, you know, when they win the championship in 81, when they win it in 87, uh, even earlier on in this decade when they're, going to the Final Four in 92. Those were really good defensive teams. This is just not. And uh, perimeter defense is a huge part of that because 
what you saw in this game was representative of what we've seen throughout the course of most of this season, most of last season, where the effort just isn't there among most no. of these players. Uh, you know, you, Luke Recker, it's it's maybe not immediately apparent because he takes charges and and that's, I guess, supposed to be a substitute for good defense. But he has this tendency to get his legs locked when he's trying to play defense. And if you can make one move on him, he tends not to be able to do anything about it. Richard Mandeville gives up a couple of really terrible fouls in the post. Uh, and it's just like, what are, you, what are you doing? There's there's very little foot movement. Andre Patterson falls victim to the same thing. Charlie Miller falls victim to the same thing, which is probably why he didn't play very much this season. And this is something that has to be corrected in future years. And, you know, you, you look at a guy like A.J. Guyton, he's obviously athletic, but he doesn't quite know where he's supposed to be defensively, and that's a concern. And I'm not seeing, like, Michael Lewis is a little undersized. I'm a little bit concerned. Like, the athleticism for IU has to get better. Because the guys who are athletic aren't playing good defense. The guys that and the guys that you know are the other guys that are out there aren't athletic enough to play good defense. Are you besmirching Richard Mandeville by suggesting that he is not athletic enough to play good defense? Is, is I would argue that inbounds play that he allowed an open layup on in the first half would <laughs> would be a good uh, good argument to that point. They showed a shot of Knight on the on the bench. What do you say? Like, will you wake up wake out up? there? Yeah. <laughs> Is there yeah. a stronger word than besmirched that I can use for Richard Mandeville? Is that possible? You know, Galen, to your point, and I don't know what all this per possession nonsense is that you were just talking about, uh, but you just look at the last four losses for Indiana. They gave up 94 points to Purdue, 112 to Michigan, as you mentioned, 82 to Illinois, and 84 to Iowa. So... Look, we'll talk about the offense because there was a lot to like about what Indiana did offensively. And I think, you know, a guy like William Gladness, he really battles in there and gives you some defensive toughness that you don't get from other guys. But, you know, again, Andy, as you start going and, and look, Brewer for Oklahoma is a really good player. So he was able to take advantage of it. But as you start moving forward in this tournament, you're going to play teams with better guards. And it's just something Look for all the points that AJ and Luke are going to score. They've got to step up. And to your point about Wrecker, you know, he's. I feel like Coach Tonsoni, if he were on the show, he would kind of describe it as fake hustle. Like he'll anticipate and get some steals and he'll kind of get in there to take some charges. But the, you know, the moment to moment defense that you really need to play possession to possession is just not really there. So it's just something that Indiana's going to have to get short up. Yeah, I mean, Brewer really gave IU fits at the beginning of the game, uh, got Lewis in foul trouble uh, early, and then you know Jimenez really struggled to stay in front of him as well. And I think it's a case where Guyton is a reasonably good defender, but do you want him to expend that much energy on that end of the floor? Do you want him to put himself in a position to potentially pick up fouls? And so, um, yeah, I thought there were times that if they'd really focused on getting Brewer the ball more, uh, they could have been even more successful uh, in, in that and then I, I did think, though, at times the interior defense, particularly in the second half, wasn't as good. And part of that was getting broken down off the dribble. But there were a number yeah. of layups that uh, Humphrey was able to get. Then some of the rebounding broke down a little bit. And that led to um, you, you talked about Will Gladness. I thought he played really well in the first half, struggled for large parts of the second half and ended up getting yanked for uh, Mandeville, which is relatively insulting given that it seemed to be for defensive purposes that uh, at any point he seemed to be a better option, but he was given up deep post position and uh, really struggling in that regard. So I think that overall just speaks to the defensive struggles that we've seen uh, from this team. And uh, they're definitely on display. Luckily the offense was good enough for a couple of really long stretches that were able to make up for that. Uh, but uh, yeah, definitely reason for concern as you head into the second round. 
Now, let's counter that with the defense and talk about the strengths of these guys. Because what you do get with A.J. Guyton and Luke Recker is a really terrific offensive backcourt. You know, in A.J., you have someone who is able to create space on the perimeter and find space on the perimeter as well as any guard that we've seen in a long time. You know, and to be able to find openings for three-pointers. With Luke Recker, you have a guy who's just... His basketball instinct is to play downhill. I mean, he is looking to get to the basket every time he gets the ball, and he really puts pressure on the defense. And so those two guys together, when you put them with a a competent point guard, which typically you're going to get from the combination of Mike Lewis and Luke Jimenez, I mean, that's a hard group to handle, you know? And so, look, they're going to give it up defensively, but they combined for 44 points tonight. Uh, You know, Wrecker got to the free throw line 12 times. AJ was able to make five threes. You know, so that that offense may be good enough to win some of these tournament games. So that is kind of the the riddle of this team this year, and it certainly makes the games exciting to watch, albeit frustrating at times. This team, believe it or not, is ninth in the country in this statistic I dreamed up the other day called effective field goal percentage, where you count threes a little bit more than you count two. So this, I'm not sure if this concept is going to catch on, but I was trying explaining that to Bill Raftery. His head might literally explode. Right. I'm just thinking, you know, Bill, it's like, well, the three counts more than the two, but they're, they're each counted as a shot. There's got to be a way we can account for that in the statistics, you know, but, but overall, uh, this is the 21st best team in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency, again, a term that may not catch on, but uh, you know they shoot really well. They shoot 53% from two. They shoot 38% from three. Despite the free throw misses that ended up eventually sending this game to overtime, this is a team that shot 73% from the free throw line on the season. And there's a lot to like offensively. Like when, when Patterson is given space to operate. And I didn't think Oklahoma played particularly good defense in this game. That certainly no. helped. They they were all over the place. But when when Patterson's got some space to work on the elbow or on the low block and Guyton is on the perimeter and Wrecker is kind of moving around doing that thing on the wing that he's doing, like that's three legitimate scoring options. And then you've got William Gladness, who's not a particularly gifted offensive player, but he's able to pick up rebounds and and get you know, points kind of in, in a cleanup role, I, I to some degree, and, and I think this is something that we should probably talk about, it was obvious that Bob Knight was upset with Mike Lewis for picking up the three fouls in the first half because we ba- he basically entered the witness protection program for the entirety of the second half. And look, it's on the one hand, you look at Luke Jimenez and you're like, well, Luke Jimenez scored seven points. I think it was seven, seven or eight. He had those two like weird plays where he just drove through the entire Oklahoma defense and, yeah. and just waited in. He had a three-pointer that he hit that was wide open. So it's Four assists, to, no turnovers, too. Yeah, it's, it's hard to criticize Luke Jimenez, but you also have to think, as the leg got tired down the stretch, that Mike Lewis couldn't have figured out a way to get the ball into the hands of A.J. Guyton more, because it felt like A.J. Guyton disappeared over the last 10 minutes of regulation, largely, and it also felt like Luke Recker, because Mike Lewis wasn't on the floor, felt like he had to be the facilitator, which... Look, Luke, you're obviously talented, but you're a freshman. Maybe back off a little bit. I, I feel like, as as Bob has been wont to do a bit, he he took the lesson he was trying to teach a little too far, and I think that might have had a negative impact on the way the offense was running. Is he too stubborn for his own good, Coach Knight? I think in recruiting, certainly. <laughs> Because I, because I got to tell you, when and look, and look, losing Jason Collier earlier this year, that was that was not helpful, but. 
when Luke Jimenez, an invited walk-on, is your top guard off the bench, that's a problem. And, yeah. and I think that – and certainly, look, I, it's hard to say – here's the thing, and I've been arguing this with some of my friends at the radio station here, the, the WIUS, where I work – uh, you know, on, on, on air quite a bit, but this idea that the game is past night by, I don't know if I totally buy it because the game, if the game had passed night by, you would expect this to be a stodgy, uninteresting team that can't score, that plays a ridiculously slow tempo. And yet none of those things are true. This is, I mean, th- this is not an abnormally slow team. This team had the 77th highest tempo in college basketball this year. And and that, that's like that's top third essentially. They they score at will. They're one of the top twenty five scoring offenses in the country. They shoot the ball really well. I would think that a guy who was who's the game had passed by wouldn't be able to have an offense that looked good. You, it would be more like John Cheney, where it's just like let's go out and like try to kill somebody every time we go out on the floor. Uh, and I think instead the problem is Bob Knight has not recruited well. Yeah, and and I think that. If you look at the guys that are out on the floor right now, it's hard to be too harsh on guys like Wrecker and Guyton and Lewis because I mean they're talking about a freshman, a sophomore, and another sophomore, and and the last two, Guyton and Lewis, they're undersized, they're guards, they're out there to score. They're not necessarily going to have the full spectrum of defensive abilities. But I think the problem is you're having to fill the gap in a post position with a junior college transfer who's okay. But, you know, I'm, I look at William Gladness, I do not see the shadows of Eric Anderson or Matt Nover or, you know, people that have played in those positions just in the last 10 years. Yeah. You, you, you've got a senior in Charlie Miller who can't get off the bench. You've got a guy in Andre Patterson who, with all of his physical talent, should be impossible to score against, and yet he seems quite pliable in the post. And, and I think that's the bigger issue is that uh, Knight seems to be incapable of getting these guys to play hard on defense, and we've never seen that before in his career. Looking in the chat mob, we have a commenter, uh, Ken Palm 69 uh, Galen, who just said, very intrigued by your statistical thoughts, dot, dot, dot. So interesting to see what might happen with that. I wonder what he does for a living. Are you a weatherman, sir? <laughs> Not sure. Um, yeah, Andy, your your thoughts on that. And, 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 you know, really, I think we also need to talk a little bit more about Andre Patterson, who obviously we talked about off the top and who I think you know, has just been a guy throughout his career that is inconsistent. You know, you remember what he did against Duke in the preseason NIT where he just went nuts. And he's a guy that can pop for these 26-point games, but obviously we know doesn't bring that same mentality every single game. But, you know, despite maybe some defensive ups and downs in, in this game and what I talked about with, you know, some of the, the possessions in the post where he went up soft, boy, you'll take this mentality from him. 18 shots, really looking for his shot. I mean, a big man, unlike what you see a lot in college basketball, where he's really more comfortable out shooting the ball, facing the basket. Um, it'd be interesting to see, you know, if there's room for a guy like that in the future of basketball. Um, but certainly the way the game is evolving, it seems like there will be. But uh, your thoughts on the night on the, the night from Andre Patterson? Yeah, I thought there were a few four shots in there. But, you know, he, he seemed to have an advantage when he could take the ball outside and uh, be able to get into the lane, maybe not right to the rim. He hit one a nice, uh, I guess, runner um, that, that you'd have from around the foul line toward the end of the first half. And uh, as you said, made some made some good plays when he went up strong. There were a couple fallaway shots, a couple jump hooks where he kind of fell uh, back from the basket, which uh, which which didn't go in, and maybe a couple potentially ill advised shots. But generally speaking, uh, he was pretty good. I think it was uh, twelve of. 
like maybe 12 of 18 on twos, which you'll, uh, yeah. you'll be pretty happy with as you get there. Um, so yeah, I thought overall a, a decent game from him logged a lot of minutes, uh, over the course of the game, but yeah, you do see, I mean, even the announcers talked about it at the beginning of the game where he made a couple shots early and they really felt like that would, uh, get him going and that, you know, maybe this was going to be one of the, the good Andre type games. So, uh, I, I thought on balance, a, a strong performance from him. Um, would like to see potentially, as Galen talked about, some something different from him defensively. He does have, you know, the athletic ability to do that. Even that one uh, lob that I think it was Guyton through in the first half, even just to get up and get that, it wasn't able to throw it down. But you know, super athletic guy that you'd like to see be able to use his his body a little bit better to keep guys away from the basket and yeah. uh, and do some of those things. But uh, yeah, I mean, a, a solid offensive performance in this team. And you know, the one thing to just touch on what Galen had talked about, you, you do kind of spin this forward to to next season. You've got this gap really um, from a junior class standpoint where you've got, you know, your Guyton and, and Lewis uh, and Wrecker that, that you will have back. But then, uh, you know, you're going to lose, uh, you're going to lose Patterson and, uh, and that. So you're going to, you know, you've got to find somebody to fill those voids. It doesn't feel like in a game where you only played eight guys, uh, that there are guys that Knight at least views at this point as capable waiting in the wing. So that'll be something, a conversation for another time, but something to at least think about as you you get closer to next season. It kind of makes you wonder if the Haston kid that they're redshirting, you know, if he could be able to give you more valuable minutes than Mandeville out there in an NCAA tournament situation. And I guess we'll have they're, to wait to find out. They're going to need him to. They certainly are. All right, coming up as we continue our breakdown of Indiana's opening round NCAA tournament victory over Oklahoma, we will point out tonight's meaningful moments that you might have missed. Then we'll go inside the numbers to highlight the most important statistical notes from this game. You are listening to the Assembly Call. Stick with us. This is Jordan Halls, and I never miss a shot or an episode of The Assembly Call. Thank you, Jordan. You are listening to The Assembly Call IU Postgame Show. I'm Jared Morris here with Andy Bottoms and Galen Clavio, and we are breaking down Indiana's seven-point victory over Oklahoma in overtime tonight in the opening round of the NCAA tournament. Certainly based on what we're seeing from the current results, it looks like Indiana will move on to face UConn in the second round, the second-seeded uh, UConn Huskies dominating fairly Dickinson right now. Uh, but, guys, it's time for tonight's meaningful moments that you might have missed. You know, and I think it's only fair – yeah, you know, we spent a lot of time criticizing the defense in the first segment. I do want to laud Luke Recker for a couple of defensive plays at the very end of the game that really sealed things for Indiana. You know, he took that charge uh, toward the end of overtime, which was really Oklahoma's last gasp. And look, I'm never quite that impressed with Luke Recker's attempts to take charges. He kind of slides in at the last second and hopes to get the call, and it hurt him earlier in the game. But he got this call, and that's fine. He was willing to put his, you know, his body on the line, and he got that call. But then, you know, I thought the better defensive play with 12.6 seconds to go was the block shot on the three-pointer uh, from Oklahoma. Just an alert, active play. He was able to then get the rebound. And so, you know, with Oklahoma trying to kind of make a last gasp, Rucker was there to make a couple of good defensive plays, and so those are worth pointing out. But Andy, you know, the stretch to me that really, really hurt and kind of, you know, Oklahoma had already turned things a little bit, but this really turned things in their direction is in the second half when it was 76-69, to 69, Indiana just holding on to a seven-point lead. 
you know, Rucker made another nice defensive play, you know, kind of anticipated to get a steal. And it looked like he was going to have a run out, but I guess, you know, the ball must have been too close to going out of bounds on the left side. And so he just kind of, you know, had to save it in bounds. Uh, there was no one there to throw it to. You know, if we could have gotten a run out there, that would have been a layup. Then, you know, we did end up getting a possession there. A.J. Guyton missed a three-pointer. You know, so OU goes down. They've got a chance to cut it to five. They missed the shot. Luke Jimenez gets it, pushes it up, gets it to William Gladness. He gets stripped. You know, if he had been able to hold on to that ball, that would have been a layup that would have put Indiana up nine. And so you had a couple of chances there to kind of settle things down. And this was, you know, before the the point in the game that I talked about in the banner uh, moment with Andre Patterson. But that was one of those stretches you either need to make those shots, get the points, and extend the lead, or you've got to work the clock. And what Indiana did was kind of indicative of some of the poor decision-making down the stretch, was just that they did neither. They took quick shots, didn't make them, and that gave Oklahoma some more time, obviously, to cut into it and force it to overtime. So that stretch right there you know, really hurt Indiana as they were trying to protect the lead. Yeah, that was a gladness. Like I talked about, he he really played well in the first half. Thought he rebounded well, had a really nice stretch, shot free throws well, um, but really struggled in the second half. Had a, a, I don't know that he scored at all in the second half. Did score those couple buckets in overtime where he, not unlike the rest of the team, uh, you know, really got back in the game. But he had a couple missed shots. I think three turnovers. I had him for uh, as I went through here, and so it was just a struggle from him. I thought you know, Knight seemed pretty upset at that play. I don't know that it was. Uh, at Gladness for getting the ball stripped or for, for Jimenez really trying to push it up the floor in that scenario as opposed to running clock. So, uh, yeah, that was a, you know, one of those stretches where, you know, make one of those plays and you can really put enough distance between yourself. But they really, during that whole stretch, was one where they had a handful of turnovers. Patterson missed the front end of a one and one. Jimenez missed a three. Uh, you talked about the Guyton missed three. Just a lot of empty possessions there right in a row. And even though during that same stretch, Oklahoma didn't score every single possession, it gave them time to kind of chip away uh, at the lead versus, you know, you make one basket there to stem the tide a little bit. Maybe you can push it out. It doesn't go to overtime and you don't put yourself in those positions late in the game. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was, you know, disappointing. I think, as, as you said, whether it was either turning the ball over, going too fast, not, um, you know, not taking care of the ball. So there was definitely some struggles down the stretch. And I think that's, uh, indicative of what you know, Knight feared going into the game and talked about that. You know, some of that is mental at this point for this team, and um, trying to to figure out how they just willed their way through. And there was definitely a point where even the announcer said, "Feels like they're just trying to hang on here," and there was way too much time left, and, and the game was too close to really start trying to do it at that point. I think the ten second call was indicative of the same thing, where it's just you're just trying to hold out and trying not to get fouled, and you completely lose sight of what's going on, and you get take a ten second violation inside the last minute of the game. There's also that moment late where Michael Lewis missed a free throw and Bob Knight looked like he was about ready to punch a clipboard. He was quite angry. Um, a couple of quotes that really stood out to me, Galen, just from a broadcast perspective, because I know that you know, you're particularly interested in breaking down broadcasts of games. Uh, Bill Raftery, early in the game, I think Oklahoma had driven in and was able to get a kick out three, said that's how much the game has changed. Drive in and kick out for the knockdown three. Again, a trend that will be interesting to see if that continues. And then uh, there was the very, very interesting set of anecdotes that Sean McDonough chose to go with in the second half about William Gladness and Corey Brewer. Uh, And I believe at one point he said, um, what was the quote that he had? Something about them both getting shot at uh, when they were growing up. Oh yeah. One of the things they have in common is both of them were shot. They're both shot. That was the quote. One of the things they have in common is both of them were shot. I think they grew up in West, maybe West Memphis, Arkansas, something like that. Um, So interesting 
an interesting night for uh for Raftery and McDonough on the broadcast. <laughs> I love Raftery, but he's he feels so old right now. Like it, it's hard to see him doing this more than another couple of years because he just fe- it feels like he's kind of out of touch with the game. And yeah. I mean, it's evolving of, very quickly for it's him. Evolved quickly, I, you know. And I mean, the last time he coached was almost twenty years ago. Now, like, do, do you really see him continuing to do this, McDonough? Yeah, same thing. It's one of those deals. I look. I I think anybody that knows the history of William Gladness, it, it's remarkable that he's at where he's at right now and um you know it's it's uh it's interesting i didn't know that he and cory brewer had played on the same team or that they were both from west memphis but uh you I, know he and, and gladness this is an interesting point to talk about gladness because i think he's a guy that really you know you you mentioned earlier his limitations you know he's not an eric anderson he's not a guy like that but he is the kind of role player that a lot of good bob knight teams have where he knows his role you know, he does some of the dirty work. He doesn't, he's not going to get in the way offensively if you're good offensive players. And he really, you know, you would like to have more depth and maybe ideally he's a guy who comes off the bench, but he really does fit with the starting lineup of this group. I'm so desperately trying not to break the fourth wall here, uh, Jared, but uh, I, <laughs> I do appreciate that, how much you're leaning into the bit tonight, Galen. I really the, I've got to commit to the bit. I will say <laughs> he is the type of player that IU has been missing for the last four years, essentially. You look at last yeah. year's team, the post players are Andre Patterson, Jason Collier, Richard Mandeville, Harris Mujazinovich, who's not really a post player, but he kind of plays in the post, and, and a freshman Larry Richardson, and I don't even count Robbie Eggers because he essentially didn't play. The previous year, it's the same cast with, with a senior Todd Lindemann who – was effective offensively, but I don't think anybody would really have thought of him as like a tough player in, in like a physical sense. That's, that's no, no negative on, on Todd Lindemann. I think he did the most with what he had. IU has really lacked the kind of bruiser, non-finesse sort of player that you need to get things done. And, and frankly, that sort of player has been a hallmark of Bob Knight teams for a long time. I mean, you can go back and – I mean, look, Matt Nover was a far better player than that, but Matt Nover wasn't afraid yeah. to, to mix it up with people. But you can go back even before that, and you can find players that Knight had, had playing in the post who their primary job was to go in and just mix it up with people. You know, I mean, Brian Sloan, famously a guy that just went in, set screens, and, and wasn't afraid to, to give physical contact. Todd Jadlow, not a finesse player by any means. It was a guy who was willing to go in and mix it up when necessary. And it, it feels like there was an archetype of an IU player in the post who was not going to let you have easy possessions offensively if you were the opposition. Yeah. And I feel like that's been missing for the last few years. And you look at the fact that IU lost three consecutive games in the first round of the NCAA tournament. To me, the fact that they win tonight with this group of people, imperfect team as it might be, as we've already discussed, is perhaps a harbinger for better times moving forward because it feels like, uh, you know, a period of time, much like you saw in the early to mid-80s where IU got away from what its identity was, they might be slowly starting to come out of the dark in from another period where they also lost track of what their identity was. This is going to sound really weird, but just go with it. If uh, late 80s Minnesota running back Daryl Thompson ever has a kid, that's kind of what William Gladness is like. <laughs> 
kind of kind of how he plays, how how I projected what, him to play. What an obscure what, what an obscure why, reference. Why Daryl Thompson? I don't understand. I don't know. It's just what just I don't know. It just kind of came into my head, so I thought I would throw it out there. I, I will say though, to to Gladness's credit, you know, he he made the six free throws in the first half. He had a couple, you know, but everything he's making is right around the basket. Even those couple buckets in overtime, he was, you know, in the right spot. Took advantage of the fact that the other players on the floor with him are where the defense is going to be drawn. Got himself into position, got a dunk and a lay in. Uh, in overtime to really get IU off to a good start, made a nice jump hook in the first half. And I think, you know, he's just a guy who benefits a lot from playing alongside a guy like Patterson who can spread the floor uh, a little bit by being able to step out and you're not, you know, banging into each other in the post. And he isn't necessarily a guy you're going to dump the ball into, but really has evolved over the course of his time uh, at IU. And and so, you know, it was a good uh, a good performance from him and really a, a key to the game when, you know, Mandeville really didn't give a whole lot off the bench. And uh, with Collier gone, as, as Galen mentioned earlier, you know, this team got pretty thin up front in a hurry. Uh, so they really need one of those guys to play well on any given night or the combination of them. And, and tonight that was Gladys. I will say one other thing. It's interesting with Knight. You remember in the, if you read season on the brink, one of the things that gets talked about is how the the recruiting falls off and Knight ends up turning to the Juco ranks to try to fill some of the gaps until he can get better four-year players. And that produced, you know, Courtney Whitty, who wasn't that great. He was, you know, there were limitations on his game. And then Andre Harris, who was a pretty major part of that 86 team and ends up flunking out. But then you get uh, Dean Garrett and Keith Smart coming out of that. So it'll be interesting to see if Knight continues to go back to the Juco well as we move forward here, I, I mean, I've, I've heard that there's rumors that he's bringing in uh, a kid. I think it, I think Lynn Washington is his name, hmm. who's uh, another JUCO who seems to be similar sort of profile as William Gladness in terms of overall size. He's like six seven or so. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if he keeps doing that or if he's going to try to you know lean more on the recruiting of freshmen in this area. Any other moments st- uh, stand out to you guys before we dive into a couple of stats? Uh, there was a couple. Go ahead. There was there was a couple that I jotted down. Uh, there was a play early in the first half, maybe not early. Uh, Wrecker manages to get a rebound while laying on his back, kicked it out. Eventually, got swung around. Uh, I think to Guyton for a three, uh, and then Guyton just a couple phenomenal plays that we you know may may take for granted at times. He had the the great shot fake. Guy flies by him, sets up and and nails a three in the first half. And then there was a a spin move and entry pass to Patterson that led to a layup in the second half yeah. that was really, really, uh, really nice. slick. So, uh, you know, Guyton for a guy, only a sophomore at this point, really carrying a lot of the offensive burden for this team, but uh, makes it look effortless at times. I think for me, th- there were a couple of moments there. The uh, There were some bad sequences. You know, IU was up 62-43 with 13.50 left, had the ball. And then they had a really bad sequence. Wrecker misses a dunk. Then Mandeville gives up the end one. But they came like like they had a good play after that. I think that was Guyton hitting a shot. There was another sequence later on in the game. The lead got down to five, and then Patterson hit a really big basket. Like there, there, there were enough of those that it kept Indiana at least at, or kept Oklahoma at arm's length from Indiana for a lot of that sequence. It's just unfortunate that that 10 second call. I feel like if that 10 second call doesn't happen, we're not even talking about overtime and yeah. this game feels like a better win than it actually ended up feeling like. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, let's look at some numbers real quick and we don't need to belabor this too long. You know, coach Knight obviously always talks about, Hey, let's make more free throws than our opponents attempt check. 
Indiana makes 21. They shot 33 free throws, so uncharacteristically poor free throw shooting for Indiana, but still made 21. Oklahoma only shoots 17. Indiana 63.9% from two-point range. And a lot of that obviously due to Andre Patterson going 12 for 18. But, you know, A.J. Guyton, three for four, Luke Recker, two for four, and Luke Jimenez, two for two. I mean, Indiana was able to find opportunities just driving to the basket. You know, and that's one thing about having guards. All three of those guys were just willing to to attack and be aggressive, which was really nice to see. A.J., you know, one of those was a beautiful curl to the top of the key um, and knocked down that jump shot. And then 18 assists uh, for Indiana against only 13 turnovers. You know, the ball, look, the ball really moved. I think as Bill Raft, it was either Raft or McDonough, I think in the second half said, this is basically a clinic of motion offense and shooting, which, hey, I think all of us would, you know, take (laughs) any day of the week. Um, So those numbers really stood out to me, Andy. What other numbers stood out to you? Uh, if you look on the potentially negative side, uh, Oklahoma gets 10 offensive rebounds. Felt like a lot of those were in the second half where they were able to hang around by getting some putbacks. A couple of those, uh, at least at least one, I think two in the second half were potential and one opportunities. And then, you know, I think you look at, we talked about the, the trouble containing uh, the guards for uh, Oklahoma. You know, their guards had 10 assists, although they did have eight turnovers, but uh, you know, kind of showed that their guards, you know, had 36 points, but also dished out 10 assists. So we're really getting the ball wherever they wanted. And if they couldn't score themselves, we're doing a good job of, of setting up others. Um, but really overall for the game, solid three-point shooting from from both teams. IU nine out of 18, so 50%. Uh, Guyton took 10 of those attempts, was was five out of 10, record three for three, uh, which was impressive. And then Oklahoma, though, you you give up, you know, over 41% shooting to the opponent there. Uh, they were 10 out of 24, made some big ones late to really get back in the game. So um, that was a, a potential concern. And then if you look, you, know, you kind of spin this ahead to the next game. You had five guys for IU play at least 34 minutes. Um, Patterson and Guyton both in uh, both in the 40s. Uh, Wrecker and Gladness each had 36. And then uh, Luke Jimenez played 34, which uh, I'm not. I don't have the stats in front of me. Likely a season high uh, for him. So you know quick turnaround to come back and play in a couple of days. So you wonder if that will, uh, that will have anything, but yeah, the offensive numbers that you said really speak to how well IU played on that end of the floor uh, and really got, got a lot of contributions from a number of different players there. Um, but uh, yeah, overall, overall the statistics tell a, a pretty favorable story for IU. And you know, one other thing I will do our game balls here in the start of the next segment. And I don't think William Gladness will probably get a lot of love there, but 12 points, six boards. He was six of six from the free throw line. Two blocks and a steal for William Gladness. You will take that line from him every single game. I mean, if you can get that kind of production from him, that's really going to be helpful as we move forward here in the tournament. Galen, any numbers jump out to you before we take a break? Uh, Just the big W, uh, my friend, as they would say, and it's a mad, 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 mad world. The fact that IU wins a first-round game for the first time since 1994 and... Yeah, it wasn't the win that w- everybody hoped that it was going to be. I've been I was pacing my dorm room back and forth for the entire second half. I, th- I think I slammed a, a closet door in frustration a couple of times. But you know the the fact that IU just wins this game, it gets a monkey off of the back of the program. You know, we've spent the last three years hearing, oh, you know, IU hasn't won in the first round, and you got you know these these columnists like bill benner you know just constantly harping on this crap in the indie star and it's like you know like like back off guys seriously like it's there's plenty of programs that have, have had some struggles and certainly we would have liked iu to have played a lot better over the course of the last few years but the fact that iu picks up the win 
against a good team. I mean, it's, a, it's not a bad Oklahoma team. As we, as we saw earlier on in the game, it's a team that's had a bunch of injuries. Uh, they're, they're obviously very talented. They've, they've got a lot of really athletic players. They seem to have a good young coach who knows what he's doing. Uh, you know, the fact that IU not being a good defensive team but still finding a way to win in this contest, I think, is at least a building block. And for me, that is the biggest thing, more so than – the promise of AJ Guyton or the or Luke Recker or the fact that Andre Patterson is finally playing consistently well at the end of his senior year. Finally, like that, those are things that are nice, but the biggest thing for the program is the victory. Do you anticipate any time over the next, I don't know, 22 years, the Indy star not having such an antagonistic relationship toward IU basketball? Will that change? Oh, I'm certain. I, I mean, <laughs> surely at some point the, the, you know, the, it'll be like any other relationship between a newspaper and its biggest audience for sports. You know, I'm sure that'll, that'll even out at some point very quickly. I'm sure it will. All right. Coming up on the assembly call, we are going to hand out our game balls. We will hit some other lingering storylines from this game. And then we'll look ahead to Indiana's next opponent. Indiana has, or Andy Bottoms has prepared a detailed scouting report of UConn. Talk about that next. Stick with us. What's up, y'all? It's Devontae Green, giving you the green light to watch Assembly Call after every IU game. Just don't listen to their opinions about shot selection. Remember, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Go Hoosiers. Thank you, Devontae. You are listening to the Assembly Call IU postgame show. Catch us live immediately following every IU basketball game, plus every Thursday night at our website, assemblycall.com. And by the way, while you're there, make sure that you sign up for our free IU Hoops email newsletter. I know, email. We actually were sent it out by paper. It actually goes out via regular mail uh, right now. But over 7,000 of your fellow IU fans have subscribed. You can also text IU to 66866 to subscribe to the newsletter. That's IU to 66866. Boy, that entire... That, that, that's a lot, of, a lot of stamps if you're mailing those out for one. And then to go seamlessly into the texting was solid. That, that, is, that entire opening would have just gone over everybody's head. <laughs> show ahead of its time it's <laughs> yes fine. yes wow. uh by the way that that guy that you heard uh talk at the beginning of the segment Devonte green hold that thought because we did get a question about him uh, a player comp question that we're going to dive into here a little bit later uh as we probably break the fourth wall and try to actually look a little bit more reflectively on this game uh with the benefit of oh, hindsight I'm, I'm so ready for that I am, wow. <laughs> I am too we did it for two whole segments i i applaud us um but let's give out game balls first uh and andy will go to you who gets your game ball uh, I, you know, I'm going to go with Patterson. It was close for me between uh, Guyton and Patterson with with the way they played. But I, I think what swayed me uh, was what you talked about in the banner moment, Jared. Where there was a few times down the stretch when things were uh, going sideways for IU, but Patterson managed to get a, a big bucket. Like I said, scored the last six points, although did not. Uh, you know, those were over a, a pretty lengthy uh, sequence of possessions, um, and, and scored eight of the last eleven. So I, I think. Uh, he was a guy who was able to do do enough in both halves to really get going. I thought he was able to draw fouls on some of the Oklahoma big guys for another team that was not particularly deep. Uh, so I'll I'll give it to Andre, but I certainly would not argue with anybody who wanted to give it to Guyton because I thought he played extremely well uh, as well. Galen? Man, I went back and forth on this quite a bit. I am going to go with Andre Patterson. Uh, I just it, And as much as there were moments where I didn't like what happened, 
Um, I mean, <laughs> he scored 26 points and five rebounds and just was there at key moments. And, and I think like for Guyton, as much as he was left alone, he hit shots that he needed to hit. There were a lot of shots that Patterson hit that I didn't expect him to hit when they went up. And we've seen in his career, he didn't hit them. (laughs) And so in this game, the fact that he hits them and has maybe one of the top five games of his career in a game where Indiana really needed it. And particularly at key moments down the stretch when nobody else was scoring, uh, I think that that does it for me as much as anything else. Patterson's just had such an interesting career. I mean, this is a guy who has scored, you know, 1,330 some points at this point in his career. You know, he's been, he came in, averaged seven points in the, you know, as a freshman, and it's been 11.3, 13.7, 12.6 since then. And, you know, he came in, he was such a highly rated recruit, and he just looks like such a physically imposing basketball player. And so I think he's been a guy that, you know, when he does really good things, it's like, well, yeah, of course he should be doing that. Look at the talent, you know, look at the recruiting pedigree. But yet, you know, I, he feels like a guy that maybe more than any other since I've been watching Indiana basketball, we focus so much on the things he doesn't do and don't really give him credit for the things that he does at times. Not That's not to say that he hasn't struggled and had bad games and all of that. He has, but I don't feel like he gets the credit enough for the good things that he brings to the table. And so I think on a night like tonight when he was so important down the stretch and really produced all game long, you know, whereas I thought AJ and Luke really drifted in and out of the game offensively and had big stretches. Andre was kind of there as a rock the entire time. And so, you know, for that reason, to me, uh, he was the best player. And so he gets the game ball. Um, all right. Let's break the fourth wall now. And let's let's actually let, let's let's actually let's kind of take a look back reflectively um, on this game. And we will start, you know, just because he did. Uh, he is here in the chat and, you know, he's our friend, Jay. Uh, he, he tossed out a question. His his statement, Galen was that Andre Patterson reminds him of Devontae Green. Your contention was that Luke Recker reminds you more of Devontae Green. Let's preface this by saying neither comparison is perfect or maybe even really good. (laughs) But if we we had to pick one of them, just because we're here in the year 2020 and it's fresh in our minds, who who did you say is more like Devontae Green, Luke Recker or Andre Patterson? Okay, I've been waiting my whole life. I know who you would say, but how would you defend it? I've been, I've been waiting my whole life to do this segment, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna just roll with it and stop me when you want to. Okay, the the comp. <laughs> We're used to having Ryan on, so you'll you'll get enough as much time as you need. The comp is absolutely Luke Recker and not Andre Patterson, and here's why: because Andre Patterson was an uh, I think a, an adequate and relatively consistent player over the course of his four years at IU. He wasn't awesome a lot of the time. He was rarely terrible. The, the biggest issue with Andre Patterson over the course of his four years at IU, for, and, and Jay might be a little young to remember this, quite frankly, is that Andre Patterson just never hit the potential that he could have had. And the potential he could have had was literally top five lottery pick. Yes. Instead, he was an, a fringe first rounder from the standpoint of the, uh, of the NBA. And it was because as much as he was a physical specimen, he was never able to put it together and dominate on a night-by-night basis. And there's no shame in that because there's a lot of people over the course of the history of basketball who were never quite able to put it all together. And I think for Andre, the biggest issue was it just didn't – I would actually say the biggest comp for Andre might be Justin Smith 
on this current team, not the Devonte Green, a guy that's got all of the physical talents, and you see him make plays, and you're just like, my God, this guy is like when he's on and plugged in is unstoppable and can also stop anybody. And yet there were so such rare moments when he did that. Now he did have, you know, these unicorn sorts of games. This was kind of a unicorn game. This, this game against, uh, against Oklahoma, the game against Duke in the NT, NIT the previous year was certainly a unicorn sort of game, but he was never as completely absent as Devontae Green often had been during the course of his career at IU. Luke Recker, well, I, I would never go so far as to say Luke Recker was completely absent. Luke Recker had an annoying tendency to just disappear in games where A.J. Guyton scored a lot of points. It, it was- happened in the next game, in the round of 32 game against UConn. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and it was one of those deals where Recker did a lot of things that got sports writers excited and got certain aspects of the IU fan base excited. But when you looked at Recker, and I think t- this, this particular game was actually a really good summation of what Luke Recker brought to the table. Luke Recker's actually kind of gotten positively whitewashed over the course of the last 20 years because what people forget about Luke Recker is that in the two years that he was at IU, he, 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 it was kind of fake hustle to take a, 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 a Tonsoni thing. Like there was a lot of, I'm going to go take a charge because, you know, like he's like the most perfect mid-90s Duke player that never actually played Duke. <laughs> in a lot of ways, and that he was gifted offensively. He didn't really try defensively, and there were times offensively where he didn't actually contribute, and that to me is not Devontae Green. Devontae Green always tried, but there were nights when he was just physically or mentally incapable of doing what he needed to do, whereas Luke Recker had a a tendency to just not do things on various nights, and then he transferred, and we never actually got to see what would have happened. Maybe he would have matured out of that, but to me, it's a much better comp to record than it is to Andre Patterson. And they're, like you said, they're all incomplete. You know, you might be right that Patterson is maybe more close to Justin Smith, but those guys are so different as players, you know, yeah. it, just in terms of skill and all those things. So, but I, I would tend to side more with you if you had to pick one of the two guys to, to compare him to. Andy, do you want to jump in on this? Kind of awkward. I was really hoping you were going to address Chase's question about how we should categorize Kevin Sampson's shirt. I really thought that's where that was. I thought it was a sweater. It was sweater material, even though it had a collar. And I'm just wondering, when was the last time both coaches in a college basketball game wore a sweater? Or fine, you know, wore a shirt with cloth material that was long sleeve, like however you want to say it. But it only had three buttons. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I don't like, know. I will say, like his his wife was. I liked her. Her hair was insanely mid nineties. Like it was tremendous. Uh, but what was he wearing? Like, I really? Like, I mean, when did he switch over to the blue dress shirt? That was a much better look. Yeah, I don't know. And it had, like, the, the I, sleeves. Way, there was a lot of cloth on the sleeves. I feel like in a gusty wind, he might have been able to fly. No <laughs> one was dressed well in this game. I thought that no. the, the Bob Knight logo athletic sweater, that was a terrible I was look. really excited about the logo <laughs> athletic uh, I, I mean, partnership. I, I, that was a good one. IU Artifacts and I were disagreeing on Twitter on this, but I much prefer the starter look for Bob Knight to the logo athletic look, the color was even wrong. Like it was Oklahoma color, not Indiana color. It was very weird. By the way, there there was one other anecdote in the game, I think in the second half where Sean McDonough 
told the story about how Kelvin Sampson like calls his dad all the time. You know, really <laughs> excessive use of the phone, which I don't know if that's going to portend issues for Kelvin Sampson in the future, but maybe he needs to learn how to curb that uh, potential obsession of his. Just saying. I like that you slip back there into the. <laughs> forgot to make. I forgot to make that point earlier. Sorry. <laughs> We're back inside the wall. Oh, we're just no. going to oscillate back and forth. Um, okay, so the other thing, you know, Jay's player comp with Devontae Green might have fallen a little bit flat. Clearly, his opinions on what Kelvin Sampson was wearing fell flat because he's wrong. But he did have a good idea, um, like what they do on the, the rewatchables on, uh, on the ringer, which basically one of the categories is, you know, what aged the best and what aged the worst from this game. So that might be good for us to hit here real quick. Andy, do you have any, anything that stands out to you? We'll go what aged the best first what is the best from this game uh i mean i really thought you saw i mean guyton is probably what i would what i would say i mean i think you really you a guard who you have confidence when he shoots yeah it's that <laughs> well i mean that's not what's happening right now but in the in the near term after this game i mean his i i mean to really look back and think that he was only a sophomore at this point and and how well he was playing and how much he was relied upon uh, and I think he's a guy who really built on that over the course of you know, the rest of his career in, in contrast in some ways to what we talked about with Patterson, you know, being so up and down. Guyton rarely had those really down games and uh, and really showed up big at, at various spots in this game. So I, I guess I'll go with that. That's a good one. You know, one of the most interesting kind of statistical notes about Guyton, you know, obviously he's a guy who was scoring from day one. He scored 13.6 points as a freshman, then 16.8, 16, and 19.7 as a senior. His assists went down every single year from 3.9 to 3.7, 2.6, 2.3. You know, and I don't think that's because he became less capable as a playmaker, but I just think he he was relied upon so much to be a scorer and just really became a guy who was, you know, was looking for a shot. And obviously, he, you know, playing with Michael Lewis, who was able to handle uh, a lot of those duties. Um, but man, just the smoothness of the shooting. And again, just the, you know, one of, one of the things that we saw so often from guards who played for Bob Knight is an understanding of how to get open, how to use space, how to create space, how to use screens. And Guyton was a guy who really, you can see it as a sophomore. I mean, he really knew how to do that and got better at it. Uh, as he went along. And obviously when you can step out and knock down shots from five feet behind the line, that's going to help you. Um, so I definitely agree. I mean, you know, a- AJ obviously aged the best. I and mean, I just think the way that Indiana ran offense, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the movement, the screening, obviously the ability to shoot, but just having, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, having a, a a set of guards that can attack you in multiple ways that can shoot, that can drive, you know, and that, that, you know, just everybody kind of fills their role, but is multifaceted. You know, that to me just really, really stood out. And it's something that obviously in, you know, really the subsequent decade, Indiana it's, has been so inconsistent in being able to find that. And for all the issues that this, this 98 team had, boy, they, they really had to lean on that. Galen, what age is the best for you? It actually feeds right into what you just said, which is Bob Knight's ability to coach offense which I think, like, the narrative, I hate the narrative of the post-1993 IU program, that somehow it was this, like, mediocre piece of garbage that that couldn't get anything done and was, like, you know, hopelessly behind the rest of the college basketball world. It wasn't. Like, this is not a good team from a, a, the standpoint of like the age of the players and the overall depth of the team. Like, it's just, it's not, it's, it's a paper thin team. 
And somehow Knight takes this team and makes them a top 25 offensive team. And they would end up getting better um, in, in that category over the next couple of years. They end up being the 19th best offensive team the next year. They end up being the 15th best offensive team in his final year at IU. And I feel like this is the real from a narrative perspective, kind of the tragedy of what happens down the line with IU basketball is that everybody gets brainwashed by media commentators into thinking that IU is just a drift. When I think what this particular season, and frankly, the next season as well, demonstrates is that IU had a couple of really unfortunate recruiting classes. That And, and Bob Knight deserves blame for those recruiting classes. Do not get me wrong. But from the coaching standpoint, it wasn't like the guy had lost his fastball. It was more along the lines of the guy brought the wrong players in to run what he wanted to run defensively and offensively. And that was always the strength of the IU program was that they did both of those things well. And here they're still doing the offense well. They're just not doing the defense well at all. And so to yep. me, you know, not just this game, but the whole uh, – all these all these tapes that I've transferred from the 97 season, the 98 season, the 99 season, and the 2000 season bring that to the forefront, that it wasn't as doom and gloom as everybody – was saying that it was but there was a need to cycle the players out that had occupied IU basketball in the middle of the 90s and I think that what you saw starting with this season and certainly over the course of the next couple of seasons was that cycling start to happen and you started to see guys come in who could play on both sides of the ball and I don't even think particularly that A.J. Guyton and Mike Lewis were were that good in that area but they were at least good enough on one side to hide their deficiencies on the other. And you started seeing, you know, Dane Fife come in. Kirk Haston, as you mentioned earlier, comes in. Yeah. They get Jared Jeffries. They get Jeffrey Newton. They get they start getting guys who are a lot more multifaceted than the players that they've had during this period. And so to me, when I look at this game and I look at how free-flowing the offense is and how easily Indiana is able to score points during large stretches of games – it calls into question a lot of the commentary that was out there and just accepted as common knowledge during that time period. And it makes me reevaluate a lot of the things that I thought about IU basketball during that time. That's very well said. Uh, what aged the worst, Andy? Besides well, Bob Knight's saw, sweater. Well, we saw the first half of a game where I don't know if you could, maybe there's a question whether this aged worse, but the, one of the things that we don't see anymore is one, the, the length of time at the beginning of games before anybody made a substitution. I, I think Oklahoma made one uh, because a guy got two fouls. I think Wiley got two fouls early, but IU hardly sub. And then, I mean, legitimately, Jimenez and Guyton played the entire second half in overtime with no rest whatsoever. So just the substitution patterns. And part of that was potentially IU's team. But even if you look forward to the next game against UConn, like UConn played a ton of guys a lot of minutes as well. So, um, that and the notion you'll be you'll be happy with this the auto benching with two fouls did not happen whatsoever <laughs> multiple i think three guys uh, between the two teams ended up with three fouls in the first half it was uh it was unbelievable you just don't see that anymore so i guess that did not age that did not age well someone decided that was not a thing that should be happening and those coaches didn't even have galen's newfangled advanced advanced data that tells them that doing that is dumb they just i guess intuitively knew that it was dumb and didn't do it i mean look a couple of smart coaches on the sidelines. You know, if you want if you want something that aged well from this game, the coaching acumen of the two guys on the sidelines. Now, say what you will about Bob Knight's late era IU roster management. You know, it wasn't as good, obviously. 
and say whatever you will, obviously, about what happened with Kelvin Sampson. But, you know, I will say, as all of you fans know, even if they call him he who shall not be named and are still mad at him for what happened, everybody acknowledges how good of a coach he was. And, you know, I think what you saw in that game was obviously one coach that had already, you know, achieved his, his greatness in Bob Knight. Another one who was up and coming, and they don't belong in the same conversation at all. You know, Knight is one of the all-time greats, and Kelvin Sampson is a a really really good coach. Obviously, one that you know still hasn't you know won a title, anything like that, and has obviously, uh, in terms of their commitment to ethics or at least commitment to the rules, there is no comparison there. Uh, but obviously, that is uh, it was a really good coaching matchup between two really good X's and O's and in-game coaches. Uh, you know who have maybe struggled in uh, later in their careers with some roster management uh, issues, to put it lightly. Uh, <laughs> Galen, what age is the worst for you? Um, you know, I, it's funny. This game feels like it was yesterday, and yet it was 22 years ago. There, there wasn't a lot that aged terribly to me. I think that from the standpoint of IU, I think... Um, what aged the worst was the sinking realization that bad roster management is undefeated boy. And, 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 you know, it doesn't matter who your coach is, whether it's a hall of fame coach that's won three national titles or whether it's an up and coming coach that hasn't quite like gotten to the level where he's gotten to a final four. If you don't have the right players on the floor, uh, it's obvious that you're only going to get a certain amount of things done and and it's probably not going to be enough. And that, that just, as I've gone back and watched these games, in particular this game tonight, I, w- I even I turned to my wife, who at one point was like, I think it's hilarious that you know what happens in this game, and yet you're tweeting about it. And I was like, <laughs> I have no defense for that. But, but you know, what, what occurred to me as I was watching this, and I don't know that I fully understood it when I was, I guess I was 19. When was I, 18 or 19? I guess I was 18 when this game was going on, was – you know, this was a this was a deficient team. This was a team that had a lot of holes. This was a team that that unfortunately fell well short of what needed to be on the floor in order to be successful. And yet they were a seven seed. They were at one point, you know, nine and four in the conference and could have finished, you know, with 10, 11, 12 conference wins. Um but but there was something that was that was legitimately deficient about the way that the IU program had put everything together, and, and I think that that's probably what's aged the worst. Is like, wow, how did things get to that point? Like, you know, yeah. f- four years earlier, you would have had a real hard time imagining a scenario where IU was kind of grasping for a first round victory in the NCAA tournament, and yet that's exactly what was happening here. That. I think from a memory standpoint is age of the worst. I'll tell you the thing that, that aged the worst for me. And it is, I was 16 uh, when this game was going on. And the thing that aged the worst watching this game now was 16 year old me, my impressions of Luke Recker, the player, because my impressions of him watching as a 16 year old. And then, you know, going out in the driveway and pretending to be IU players was a player whose most impressive offensive attribute was shooting and who I thought was like a good, gritty defensive player. And watching the game, watching the game again now, the thing that impressed me the most about him offensively was his mentality and ability to get to the basket. Like I just his 
ability and willingness to play downhill and constantly put pressure on the defense. I mean, the shooting obviously helped, and 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 you know that made him a uh, an effective player because people had to back off of him. But you're just that aggressiveness and and the confidence and the ability. Even though he wasn't a great athlete, you know, he could jump a little bit, but not a, a great athlete. But he knew how to use his dribble. He knew how to use angles. He knew how to get a guy off balance and get into the lane. And that, to me, was his most important offensive attribute, and it made everything else go. And then defensively, as we talked about, you know, you'd have some. He would make some plays, but he just wasn't a good possession to possession defender. Uh, and it's just it's really glaring when you watch him for forty minutes. I, you know, I still remember the, the 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 game at home against Purdue that we basically won because he took that charge. You know, and I obviously went to high school in West Lafayette, and you know everybody was talking crap about that. You know, after it happened. But you know he would take those charges and do some of those things, and like I said, he made a couple of defensive plays at the end of this game, the block, and some of those things would stand out. And I think he had he did have four steals in the UConn game coming up, even though he didn't have a good game overall. But the possession to possession defense just really wasn't there, and so it's interesting how my impression of him watching this game tonight was almost the inverse in a lot of ways of what my impression was of him when I was sixteen. And I this, loved Luke Recker when I was 16. Jared, this is something I found over and over again when I watch games from this era. The, the best players, whether it's Luke Recker or Andre Patterson or Jason Collier, best, best players from the standpoint of, oh, they were highly regarded when they came into the program. When you go back and watch them, you're like, wow, these guys are limited. Like, <laughs> there's, a real, there's a real lack of breadth of their games, whether with records, obviously, defensively, um, you know, with Patterson, it's kind of an effort thing more than anything else. With Collier, it was certainly um, not just a, a defensive thing, but also an, uh, an unwillingness to go inside. And you're just like, you know, I remember like you automatically, and this was kind of the training of being an IU fan. You just automatically assumed if you had a, got a top player come in for IU, they were going to be really good. And they were going to go occupy a particular space and they were going to immediately be good doing it. And this was the era where that wasn't the case. And it's like you kept waiting for them to round into the shape that you had seen when you were a, a younger kid, and it just never happened. And, yeah, the record thing's interesting because, you know, I, I, I always think back to the way that record is portrayed in The Last Days of Night, that, that 30 for 30. And you would think that, like, this guy was, you know, the, like a combination of Larry Bird and Jesus, like, on the floor. And and it just wasn't the case. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not saying that it, it was great that he transferred. I mean, it would have been much better for IU from a variety of levels if he had stayed. And, and he certainly had his reasons for leaving. But it wasn't like you were losing a guy who was just an automatic, awesome player on the floor at all times. And I think that that was the case for almost all of the players they were in the upper echelon of IU's program during that entire four or five year span. And that's, it's hard to come to grips with because as a, as a, a teenager or as a preteen or whatever, you don't, you're not programmed to think that way. And yet I think yeah. for a lot of our, the people that listen to our podcast, that's the, the era they grew up in. Yeah. And, you know, he and AJ were such an interesting pairing because again, you know, so good offensively so skilled offensively but then defensively when you have both those guys out there it's hard to cover for both of them you can cover for one of them but it's really hard to cover for both of them when they're both struggling to consistently contain guys on the perimeter so and you know just an interesting pairing in that sense anything else that aged well that aged poorly is there any any other segments that that we should do 
uh, as we really wrap, wrap up this U- first live rewatch. I was feverishly getting that UConn preview ready. So uh, <laughs> they would go on to face a UConn team that had Richard Hamilton and Khalid Amin who gave up in the next round. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to figure out which uh, what what kind of guys were on there. So those were the two leading scorers by a fairly wide margin. Also had uh, Jake Voskel was uh, a sophomore oh, on the yeah. team at the time. Ricky Moore, I think he evolved relatively well. But yeah, it was uh, Hamilton and, and Elamine who were the guys who did the, most it, of the damage. It was funny preparing for this. I felt so directionless not having Ken Palm to go to just to get like kind of an initial like, hey, let me just compare these teams real quick to get a flavor of them. Where did you get your numbers going back that far, your advanced stats? Okay, here's a little secret for Ken Palm. Even though they're not available if you click on the Indiana page, if you click on Bob Knight's page, they've actually got uh, – they're not game by game. But if you go back and look – Do they really? Get, you can get Bob Knight tempo-free stats at IU in 97, 98, 99, and 2000. Holy it's, smokes. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. No, I, I, and I've, been, I've been hesitant to tell anybody about it because it's like been my little secret. But <laughs> I, didn't, I did not know yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's part of the protocol, and I don't understand why exactly, but it is what it is. Now, you know, it's interesting about let me let me look up that UConn team real quick because I'm I'm sure I can find them. Um, I mean, you did give Ken Palm the idea for advanced stats, you know, so, generally, so, that, so he gave so you the back UConn, door. That, so that UConn team in 1998 was the fifth ranked Ken Palm team. Overall, that team was 14th in offense, fourth in defense. They were 32 and five on the season, and their defensive effective field goal percentage was 43.6. That was a really good team. That's really and good. And so, honestly, like IU keeping it as close as they did in that second round game was a pretty big accomplishment because that was not, that was, IU was probably the worst seven seed, and UConn was by far the best two seed. They probably should have been a one seed. Uh, you know, all things being equal that year. So, yeah, that's uh, if you go back and look at Jim Calhoun's like history in Ken Palm, you can actually go back all the way to 1997. Yeah. And just if you want to know what happened in that game, uh, UConn won 78 to 68. Indiana actually led at halftime 41 to 36. And then UConn just bludgeoned us in the second half, 42 to 27. But that's Patterson, the, the way, that, that game is also on the YouTube channel. Oh, so, is it? Okay. Yeah, it, It's there if you want to watch it. Yes. So Patterson scored 23 points. So, I mean, another, you know, really nice game for him. I mean, it's nice to see him go out really playing some of his best basketball as a senior. Guyton contributed 17 points. And then, like I mentioned earlier, you know, Luke Recker only gives you eight. Uh, and Gladness gives you four. Michael Lewis did not start. Luke Jimenez actually started that game. So the doghouse wow. continued. <laughs> which Bob, what are you doing? You know, now Lewis did end up playing 27 minutes and had six assists and fouled out of the game. <laughs> so uh, how, do you, how do you foul out in 27 minutes? <laughs> I don't know. I do. I do not know. So, yeah. and then and that was Luke Recker's last game. He would transfer after the season. I remember that because. Luke, so we had two major transfer events within like five months of each other. The Jason Collier transfer happened at the semester, like at the end of the the, the fall semester that year. I was at, working at WIUS at the time. And then I always remember the Luke record transfer because it happened kind of out of the blue at the beginning of April, I think. And there was a, an anchor for one of the Indianapolis television stations that came down to Bloomington and was reporting on it. 
and then st- like my sports director at WIUS, um, w- like he talked with the guy at the radio station, and then and then this this anchor, the guy, the guy who already had a job, stole my friend's like job list because he was looking for jobs at that point. Just like walked off with it and like left. It was very weird, <laughs> but um, yeah, there was a lot of upheaval at that point. Like you know, Collier left, Wrecker left, and it was just it it the whole thing felt like it was going off the rails at that point. Yep. Wrecker left after Wrecker left after the 98 99 season is what it says on uh sports reference. Oh, that's right. He was just a freshman this year. Yeah, yeah he was right. a freshman. That's right. Year, okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. That's, that's what I was right. thinking. He did play one more year. Okay, so take all those memories and move them forward a season. Okay. <laughs> Either way. Still <laughs> we, nonetheless. Yeah, leading scorers for IU the next season. He he led the team in scoring at 16.1, Guyton had 16, then Haston was almost at 10. Um and Gladness Lewis, Rob Turner, Larry Richardson had a robust 4.5 points per game. My college roommate and I had, like, we were big time Larry Richardson fans against all logic, really. But uh, I, I went to I, Lynn I Washington, average four Richardson points. I never be a fan of his. But anyway, that's another <laughs> story for another day. <laughs> well, gents, this was fun doing the live rewatch. Um, any final thoughts before we shut things down here? No, it was uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun to watch. It was uh, I got to tell you, I I my memory on some of the stuff is not not very good. It was jarring to see Richard Mandeville be the second guy off the bench. That, oh, if, if that might be my lasting impression of this game was holy crap, how in the world was this roster at a place that was at? So to win, Richard any Mandeville NCAA was a highly regarded recruit when he came in. I'm not making that up, am I? Like no, he you're wasn't. Not, you're not making that. He up. was like I I want to say he was a five star. Was he a five star recruit or like a he wasn't that he, high, okay, but he, he was, was like, highly regarded. He was like the player of the year in California, but he, but he was. It, I think it was clear early that he was not going to live up to that high standard. I mean, yes, it is funny. It, when you look at that roster, and it's like the guys that didn't play or barely played in this game. Rob Turner was injured. Robbie Eggers didn't play at all. Yeah, and Larry Richardson didn't play at all. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Larry. God, that was yeah. That's another story for another day. Um, but no, um, the, the um, go, ahead. No, go ahead, Gan. No, go ahead. Finish. Uh, all I was going to say was this: I, I think this game makes me sad because <laughs> it's always looked at within the context of the previous three years. I think it should be looked at within the context of the succeeding couple of years, and yeah. like. You know, the, they weren't going to beat UConn. UConn was a really good team that year. I think the following year they got screwed a little bit because they played really well. They beat George Washington by a bunch, and then they ended up yeah. running into a buzzsaw in St. John's. That St. John's team probably should have gone to the uh, the Final Four. And then everything fell apart in that la- that following year because of a couple of losses at the end of the season, and then they had everything happen with the tape. But like this, this was actually the upswing for IU basketball that we saw eventually carry out into a national championship game appearance. And this was honestly, this game was the beginning of that. And and it makes me sad knowing that in retrospect, because no one else thinks about it that way. Everybody thinks of this as just like, oh, here's a game where IU slightly resembled its past self, but not really. And this was like the end of the ultimate, uh, you know, the, 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 the decline of Bob Knight. And this, that really isn't how it worked. It should have worked out, but that's ended. That's how it ended up working out. And that, that does depress me quite a bit. 
I just found an article from when Richard Mandeville committed, and uh, it said it talked about you know Knight coming and and watching him. I guess he came to watch a game, and Mandeville suffered a twisted ankle ten minutes into the game, and his uh, his coach relaying a statement from Knight said he just looked at me and said ten minutes was all he needed. He was impressed. So just to say, there were some good anecdotes of Bob Knight seeing a guy for ten minutes or you know not seeing him much and offering him a scholarship. And there were some not so successful examples or anecdotes from that. And this one I would say would be yeah, one, you know, of, one of those. Rafe LaFrance, Richard Mandeville, you know, yeah. Um ugh. Yeah. So uh so real quick though, upcoming schedule. So this was the first of our live rewatch series. This is the round of sixty four game. We are doing another one on Sunday. So Indiana, you know, just like in the normal tournament, you do on Friday, they win, you're gonna play Sunday. We are doing the round of 32 game from 1992, Indiana versus LSU. If you don't recall that game, that is when LSU featured a center by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. This is a really, really fun game. Who's on for that game? It's going to be Scott, Ryan, and Coach, I think, are going to be doing that game. So we'll do the live rewatch. Same thing as we did for the Oklahoma game at 8 o'clock Eastern. We will start it. Some people requested that we do like a five-minute break at halftime to get like snacks and go to the bathroom. So maybe we'll do a synchronized intermission at uh, at halftime, uh, and then we'll have, you know we'll hop right on for the post game show afterwards. We'll see if those guys can carry uh, not breaking the fourth wall for two whole segments. I don't even know if they should try. It was <laughs> it was fun to do for the first one. You know? <laughs> Professionals are needed for yeah. not breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, really, so. yes. I'm just I'm very very excited to see the interplay between Scott and Ryan. That's 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 one of my underrated. Like like things that I'm looking forward to with this series is just seeing the different combinations of hosts. You like <laughs> watching the world burn. As, yeah, as the person who set up the combinations, it's now clear why you did what you <laughs> yes, did. Yes, I just want to see lots of different combinations. It's nice to see different lineups playing together. Some right, will have right. better plus minuses than others, and we'll just have to see. We'll have to see how it goes. This is this is luckily it's, it'll be after a win, so it's not like that would probably be a little bit more, a little bit easier to get through. Yes. This is this is Devonte Green and Luke Recker on the floor at the same time. I mean, it really is. Yes, it's it's going to be. Wow. I know, and you're not going to be there to help rein Scott in. I'm not going to be there, and Andy's not going to be there to help rein Ryan in. So, Coach, right. good luck. <laughs> <laughs> this one's on you, Coach. You, you can you'll earn your earn your Coach moniker. Uh, but we really appreciate everybody who was there live. Like so many people tweeted me pictures and you know, sent me notes talking about how much they were looking forward to this. And, you know, I just want to say, as we close here, you know, doing the games, talking about the games, going through these memories, like the actual mechanics of what we're doing to me is really enjoyable. And I find it really fun. But what really matters about this to me, like kind of the deeper meaning underneath it and why I think everybody was so enthusiastic about it is I really feel like the biggest thing that we lose with March Madness canceled is not just watching basketball. It's the shared experience of watching basketball and being on Twitter and going through these moments together and you know watching IU playing a tournament game, being able to do a, a breakdown. And, and during a time when we're all isolated and kind of feeling uncertain and uneasy, like I feel like being able to get this community together is really meaningful. So I really appreciate everybody coming for the live show. If you're listening on the podcast, like that's really the underlying reason why we wanted to do this. And so, you know, the games are there. We're going to have fun breaking them down. I think we can, you know, I think we can learn a lot about the history of IU basketball doing this. But to me, the most important thing is let's get together 
and spend some of this time where we're isolated together in a comfortable place with the diversion of sports. Because I think it can mean something. So that's that's my hope anyway. That's why we're doing this. Jared, I just want to say thank you. A, first of all, for having me on. And, and second, it's been great seeing this many people you know, watching and following along with the stream. I've been doing virtual happy hours with friends of mine <laughs> every day over the course of this week. And this is the best virtual happy hour I've had so far because we've been able to talk about something that you know, a decent number of people watched and we all have some memories of this is the sorts of things we need to do to get through the quarantine. And yes. so thank you for having the vision to put this together. And I really appreciate being a part of it. <laughs> Great uh, quote that we'll end on from Jen in the chat mob. She said, I mean, Galen spends a third of the show gently raining Scott back in. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a conservative time estimate, Jen, quite frankly, but yes. <laughs> Uh, this is going to be fun. I look forward I look forward to, to hosting one of these with Scott. It'll be fun. But yeah, thank you everybody for being here. Um, Andy, any final thoughts from you before we wrap up? No, just to agree with what Galen said. It was We've been talking about doing this for years. I think yeah. Scott and some of the emails that we had exchanged had talked about wanting to do the same thing. So uh, while not a great uh, impetus to actually follow through on it, uh, it was fun to do through, uh, through one game and looking forward to the rest of it. And hey, we we just got people to watch an entire IU game from the mid nineties. Like yeah. what what other circumstance would possibly make that happen? I think that's amazing. I know. Hey, we just gotta make the most of it. All right, everybody. Thank you for being here. We will be back Sunday, eight o'clock. By the way, if you need the links and if you want to see the schedule, go to assemblycall.com slash rewatch. That has the details for what we're doing. It has the schedule, it has the YouTube links for all of the games. And it'll be the same thing. 8 o'clock Eastern, we'll start it. Post-game show after. And we hope to see a lot of you here. With that said, have a great uh, rest of your night. And we'll see you in a couple days. Bye, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you. It was good. It was a lot of fun. That was fun. By the way, I want to show something. Because she's here in the chat. So Sarah Jackson is one of our listeners. She sent this in the mail. She actually did like a painting of the assembly call logo, which is awesome. And she just sent it with this really nice note, just as a thank you for, you know, what the show has meant to her and, you know, how much she enjoys coming on here. She found the chat mob in the community. So I just want to say thank you to Sarah for putting this together. Cause it's, it's awesome. You know, things like this, that audience members. Yeah, do. I got mine. Oh, did you get yours too? Yeah, I got mine as well. So yeah, thanks That's awesome. to, uh, thanks to Sarah. Mine's sitting upstairs, but yeah, I did. Uh, I got it this week too. So it was cool. Yeah, and Alex from our community actually did all these. I haven't shown you these yet. I got to figure out a way to mail them to you. These like acrylic cutouts of the assembly call logo, which they're kind of fragile. So I got to figure out how I'm going to send them. But he he was like practicing doing these acrylic cuts. He's like, hey, I'm just going to do the assembly call logo. And so like sent me a bunch of them. They're really cool too. That kind of stuff means a ton. So just uh, thank you to Sarah. Thank you to Alex. We appreciate We appreciate that. That's awesome. All right. Let's go get some rest and... Be ready to go for Sunday. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See you, everybody. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.